Turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 7 through 12 this morning. Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. And once you've found your place in the scripture, whether it's a physical Bible or an electronic app, please stand to your feet as we read God's word together. Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. God's word says this. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the fields shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray this morning, church. Heavenly Father, we come to your word now. And as we just sang, above all else, give us yourself. Give us Jesus today, Lord, in the scripture May we feast on the true bread from heaven, the true life, the way. May we know Jesus more. May we be rebuked in our sin. May we be encouraged, Lord, where we need to be encouraged and strengthened. What is crooked in our life, God, I pray that you would straighten out so that we may be trained in righteousness this morning. God, I pray that as your servant, as your under shepherd, that you would fill me with your spirit now, God, and the Holy Spirit would just use whatever gifts he's given me to bless your people and to give them and to give them and give them more grace from your word, God. For you give and you give and you give. And then you give more, God. You are not a stingy God. You are a generous, loving God. And may we receive that encouragement to be the same as you are, Lord, in glorifying you by being givers. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, please be seated. The sermon is titled, God's Love Forgiving. God's Love Forgiving. There are a few subjects that bother people more than the subject of giving to the church. I suspect that there are several reasons. One reason is that people love their money, and they don't want to part with it because they'd prefer to spend it on themselves. Another reason is because there have been wolves. Listen to what I'm saying. There have been wolves in sheep's clothing, that have conned and tricked people into giving to the church, and then those wolves use the money for selfish gain. But they are wolves in sheep's clothing, false teachers, false leaders, false elders, false brothers, conning people to give for their own selfish gain. And those people are morally corrupt. They're bankrupt. They're phony leaders, false Christians. They're thieves, and they're dangerous. And they infiltrate the church. They pretend to be one of us, only to siphon God's resources for their own sinful cravings. 
And that's nothing new to Christianity. God has actually warned us to be on the lookout for such people. The Apostle Paul says to watch out for enemies of the cross because they masquerade as leaders in the church, but their God is their belly, okay? Meaning that their simple appetites, that's what they serve and that's what they worship. That's found in Philippians chapter 3, and I taught on that a couple years ago. Peter, the Apostle Peter also warns of, of, uh, of greedy false teachers in his second letter. He says that they follow their sensuality, meaning things that have to do with their senses, their cravings, the, the pleasure of their senses. And in their greed, they will exploit believers with false words. In other words, their sinful appetites are so strong that they will pretend to be preachers of God's word. And they will say things that sound godly, but are not, in order to get you to give to them so that they can purchase whatever sinful things their heart desires. They will exploit you. Church, God cares that we are not conned. God cares that we are not defrauded by hell-bound false teachers that would use God's resources that he has given to us so that they can further their own sin. God cares that we not be defrauded. Nevertheless, that is not an excuse to be stingy with the finances that God has entrusted to us to use for the advancement of his kingdom and the proclamation of Jesus Christ to the uttermost parts of the world. So let me say it this way. We are not excused from furthering the gospel of Christ through our financial contributions just because false teachers creep into the church and try to steal what God has given us to use for his glory. Does that make sense? Just because that happens doesn't mean, hey, I, gotta, I can't give because there are false teachers. That's not how scripture uh, calls us to live. We are called. We are called to help the needy. We are called to support the advancement of the gospel of Christ by supporting our church elders, by supporting missionaries, by supporting evangelists and gospel projects throughout the world. This is part of the point of today's text as we draw near to Christ through his word. We're going to look at Israel, and we're going to see that God has a fifth problem with them in Malachi. They have violated God's covenant once again. And if you've been tracking us as we've gone through Malachi, we've already looked at four problems that God has with Israel so far, and they're sinning against him. And for a full explanation of those previous four problems with Israel, you can go to sermonaudio.com, type in the name of our church, You'll see my name, or you'll see ways that you can look up sermons by books of the Bible. You can look up Malachi or Josh Ritchie, and you will see those sermons filed under the book of Malachi. So I'm not going to go over all that. Today, though, we come to the fifth problem, and it relates to Israel's giving. And while Israel's giving, while it was distinct to the Mosaic Covenant, we can still learn about giving in relation to the New Covenant, or Christ, from this passage. And you'll see a bunch of notes up on the screen. I'm not even going to make reference to them. They'll pop up as I'm talking, hopefully. Okay? So again, Israel's giving was in relation to the Mosaic Covenant. And even though this pertains to them, we're going to see how we're called to give slightly different. Even more importantly, as we look at the text, we'll see that giving is meant to remind us of the salvation that our gracious God has given to us. Giving reminds us of that. And so this morning, as we come to the fifth problem of Israel, we're going to see that. 
Israel is violating covenant with God once again, and they're not giving like they have covenanted to do and have they, as they have promised to do because God has freed them formerly from the slavery of Egypt. So what I want to do this morning is to give some prerequisite background information so that you'll understand a few things so that our text will almost make instant sense to you. If you have all this information, the text should be very easy. First, let's talk about Israel being in covenant with God, okay? Israel being in covenant with God. Israel was a guy that used to be named Jacob. We got a Jacob, maybe two in our service this morning. Jacob, name was changed to Israel. He has 12 sons, and God had promised that this family would grow into a great nation, and so 12 sons is a great way to start a nation, wouldn't you think? They get married, they have kids, and this, this family that comes from Jacob is now a family of 70, and there's a famine in their land, and they have no food, and so they go all the way down to Egypt, where Egypt has plenty of food, and they find out that one of their relatives is down there, one of the 12 sons that the 11 others betrayed, he's down there. He's the right-hand man of the leader of Egypt, the right-hand man of Pharaoh. So they're going to be taken care of. And so they live down there for a 430-year period in Egypt. And this family of 70, imagine after 430 years how big it can get. They're growing and growing. The Egyptians don't like this. They're scared. And so they enslave them and they begin to oppress them. They had grown to the point where the Egyptians were scared. The Israelites, Israelites then cried out in agony and in suffering. And scripture says God heard the pains, that God heard their pain and their suffering and their cries. And he responded to them based on the covenant that he had made with Abraham. There's Abraham, his son Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob who is Israel. So this promise that he made to Abraham was now connected to the grandson Israel and now the nation. They're crying out to God and God hears it and he responds based on the covenant he made with Abraham. This is where God's mighty acts, if you know the story of scripture, this is the story where God's mighty acts through Moses led to the freeing of the Israelites from the Egyptian slavery. Many of us know about the 10 plagues and then the parting of the Red Sea and all that stuff. So with Israel free now, they're free from Egypt. They are now able to worship God in the desert. So they're in covenant with God. While in the desert, Moses, the one who led them out of Egypt, he, he goes up to the top of Mount Sinai several times. And it was there that God issues another covenant with Israel. We call this covenant the Mosaic Covenant. In this covenant or contract or promise, they all mean the same thing. God promises to bless Israel if they keep his covenant, and God promises to curse them if they broke this covenant. They're required to obey God because he lovingly freed them from slavery and harsh conditions back in Egypt. Pharaoh no longer was their ruler. God was their king. This was a newly formed theocracy. It was not a democracy. It was not a republic. It was not an oligarchy, a dictatorship, or a monarchy. It is a theocracy with God in charge. If this contract that God made with them, um, in it were rules for eating, things to eat and things not to eat. There were rules for how to treat the poor and the needy. There's rules for sacrifice. There's rules in this covenant for the priesthood. And there's instructions on how to build a special meeting place where God would dwell with them in, the, in their midst. There's rules for holy days or special days of worship. There's rules for feasts, 
rules for festivals, rules for reparations, rules for cities of refuge, rules for cleansing and diseases, rules about debt and forgiveness, rules for marriage, and it goes on and on and on. There's a lot of rules in this covenant. And there were rules for giving as well, for giving, not forgiving, like when someone sins, you forgive them, but rules about giving and generosity. That's what, that's what we would call in the Old Testament tithing, which is what is being addressed here in Malachi. This whole covenant, this whole Mosaic covenant, was something God made with Israel and not other nations. Please get that straight. This Mosaic covenant was for Israel, not other nations. Okay? Yet this whole covenant, along with Israel, would serve the purpose of them living in a very unique way that would help all the nations of the world see our sin and our need for God to save us through a substitute sacrifice so that God could dwell with us and we could dwell with him. So while the Mosaic Covenant is specifically for the living of the Israelites, it does tell the rest of the world some very important things about how to be reconciled to God. The sacrificial system would show how mankind could be reconciled to God and brought near to him and how we can worship him properly for who he is and how we can live forever together with him in the new heaven on earth or the new creation. God's plan, brothers and sisters, has always been to live with humanity on earth. Our sin wrecked that, and Jesus fixes this serious problem. And the Mosaic Covenant helps us to see, it's, it's, it's like a, a living story of what God is going to do to save humanity through Jesus, through this nation. So now that we know that we are in a period in which Israel is under the Mosaic Covenant, we have to understand the nature of tithes and contributions. So there's some prerequisite information I just gave you. Now I'm about to give you some, something specific to giving and tithing under the covenant, okay? The first thing you need to understand is that the promised land of Israel that God gave them was a gift from God to the Israelites. It was a gift from God to the Israelites. By virtue of God creating everything in the universe, there is nothing in the universe that does not belong to God. Correct? It all belongs to him. Anything they possessed thus belonged ultimately to who? God. Yes. And the same is true of us. When God promises to start a a nation through Abraham, it was God who would show him the land. To Abraham, And when it was time for the Israelites to take possession of the land, Scripture makes it clear that it was the Lord God who was giving them this land. In Deuteronomy 1, we see that. God says, I'm giving you this land. Thus it belonged to God to give to them. God had freed them from Egypt and a harsh land, and now he's giving them a land from himself that will bless them with abundance when they stayed in covenant with God. Their land would produce amazing harvests. And when they did it, it would go awful for them. So any produce that they're farming, any produce or blessings they received from the land are all gifts from who? God. And all that they had was from God and because of God, because they had nothing when they left Egypt. They had nothing. They were broke. And God gave and gave and gave. And that's why the songs we sang this morning all focused on Jesus paying it all. And he gives more grace when our resources are, are just down to, the, to nothing. God gives and gives and gives. And sometimes he gives and sometimes he takes away. And what we're ultimately asking God is no matter what you give me, above all else, give me yourself. Brothers and sisters, this is all what we're focusing on this morning. In Leviticus 27, verse 30 through 32, 
we see that ultimately the tithe belonged to the Lord. The tithe, if everything belonged to God, including the crops and the tithe or the 10% that he's demanding of them, that belonged to the Lord too. That's what God says. Tithe means a tenth part, a tenth part in Hebrew. And the Israelites were required, again, under the Mosaic Covenant, to set aside a tenth of all that they produced from the land and from their herds, from their livestock. They were all gifts from God. Whatever crops they produced, whatever animals they produced, 10% was set aside for the Lord. It was whose? It was God's. In the book of Numbers 8, verses 21 through 24, God says that although the, the tithe belonged to him, he was going to give it to the Levites for their service in the tabernacle. The Levites, they were the tribe of Israel, one of the 12 tribes. And they, were, they were broken up into two groups, priests and servants. So there was a part of the, the Levites as a, as a state, if you will say, and one family, they were the priests. All the other families from Le, the tribe of Levi were servants in the temple. And the tithe that belonged to God was now to become the income of the tribe of Levi. The Levites didn't get a portion of this promised land like the 11 other tribes did. And so they had no land to grow crops. They had no land to feed herds, which they didn't have either. Their full-time job was to serve God in their tabernacle and through their priestly work. Priestly work that would show the people how they stayed reconciled to God through this grand sacrificial system that ultimately pointed to Jesus Christ. And that's what they did full-time. Ultimately, all this pointed to Christ. They served full-time. They had no other way to provide for themselves. And so the nation of Israel, the other 11 tribes, gave 10% of the harvest and of the animal uh, produce, if you will think of it like that. Um, all of it that belonged to God, they gave 10% to support the Levites. Okay, But the tithe of Israel that belonged to God, which God gave to the Israelites, it didn't stop with the normal 10% of all that they produced and earned. Two other tithes are recorded in Deuteronomy 14. Okay, There was a tithe that was meant for the benefit of the Israelites and as well as the Levites. It was kind of like a savings plan for a vacation spot. Not exactly, but uh, if you want to think of how sometimes you save money so you can go on vacation, right? God gave you the money, you're saving it, now you get some rest. It's kind of like that, this tithe. At God's choosing, he would designate a spot where the Israelite could go and, and have some fun. But the, when he went, he would carry the name of the Lord. The whole point was to carry the name of the Lord with the Israelite wherever they went. And so wherever the Israelite went, they were to take this particular tithe and to feast on it because it's a harvest, right? they take this tithe. If it was too big to carry, too much, maybe they had an abundant harvest. If it's too much to carry, God says, you can sell it and you can use the money to spend on whatever you want and whatever you desire, like a vacation. And if there were Levites in the town that they went to that God designated, then the Israelite would care for them there and make sure that they were still supporting the, the Levites, the priesthood and the servants. God set up this tithe, Scripture says, so that the Israelite would learn to fear God and stand in awe of him. That is, God gave me this. I, I owe everything to him that, that he would give this to me and makes me stand in, in wonder of who God is. Okay, It is to remind them of how good God is 
and the deviating from devotion to him would result in judgment and the loss of his blessings to break covenant with God. It was the, his land that he gave them. It was his reign that he'd send on the crops to produce bountifully. It was his blessing that caused the herds to produce even along with their wives. This tithe serves as a reminder of God's faithfulness to keep his word. Because what did he say he would do? I'll bless you if you stay faithful to me. And so this, this crop and harvest, it all showed God's faithfulness. I'm doing what I said, and therefore you give 10%. And these two uh, ways um, to show that I'm, and remind yourselves that I'm the one keeping my faithfulness. Then there was another tithe, another one. Every three years, the Israelites um, had to give another tithe. And it, this tithe was used to help the Levites as well. It was used to help immigrants, the fatherless, and the widows those who were destitute in society and needed help. So we see these three tithes so far. All information to help you understand what we're going to get to in the text. Aside from that, there's, there's another tithe, the tithe of the tithe. The Levites who got all this tithe for their income, they were to take 10% and they were to give it to the high priest, the chief priest. Okay? This is the guy that was able to go into the Holy 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 of Holies once a year and offer sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. So needless to say, the tithe system was a bit more complicated than just giving 10% like many people have been told. How many of you think that, or formerly thought the tithe of the Old Testament was just 10%? Anybody here thought like that before? Do you see how much more complicated it is than maybe other people have told you or not told you? Okay, The tithe. It's, it's pretty interesting. You need to understand that the tithe mentioned in Malachi, it's tied to the land and what it produced as they stayed faithful to God. The tithe was also tied to, Levi- to the Levitical service in the tabernacle or the temple in regards to the service that pointed the way to Jesus Christ and his saving work. So all this tithing was in the Mosaic Covenant along with all the other laws about contributions and offerings, about all the other laws I read about earlier, about, about cities of refuge and how to take care of the needy and sacrifices and eating and, and all that stuff. It's all part of the Levitical covenant, okay? Prior to the Mosaic covenant, we do see a couple, uh, couple of instances of tithing in Genesis. The most famous one is when uh, Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. Abraham went to battle with a guy named Keterleomer, and he took all the spoils of the war, and he gave 10% to a priest named Melchizedek. But that is, that is a story describing what happened, not telling us to give 10%. Okay, I want to make the distinction between description versus prescription. It's descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. The author of Hebrews even mentions a situation where Abraham gave to Melchizedek. The author's point in Hebrews is not to enforce the tithe, but to show how Jesus is like Melchizedek and he's of a higher order of priesthood than the Levites. So the whole point of Hebrews in bringing out this tithe situation is to show that Jesus is superior in priesthood to the Levites. Just as Jesus is superior to angels, the author of Hebrews says. Just as Jesus is superior to Moses, the author of Hebrews says. So we want to make sure that we understand what those passages are talking about. Again, um, tithing was basically confined to Israel like all other things in the Mosaic Covenant. And we are going to see this morning how this relates to Christ and yet what our financial obligation is when it comes to supporting the work of Christ. 
So now that we have this background information on the Mosaic Covenant, let's get to the main text, which will make a lot more sense now and will require less, less explanation. Okay? The first thing we see this morning is that God calls attention to a lack of giving. God calls attention to a lack of giving. And a lack of giving violates God's statutes. Again, these are rules in the Mosaic Covenant. So their lack of giving violates God's covenant. So the first reality, again, God calls our attention to is that Israel's lack of giving is a violation of his commands. Let's look at what God says to them in verse 7, the first part of it. It says, from the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Israel has a long history of turning away from God and not keeping his laws. If you want to see a cycle of Israel's sin, look at the book of Judges. It's fascinating. Time and time again, they turn away from God. Time, and they're under the Mosaic Covenant at this point. When they turn away from God, time and time again, God's judged them. Time and time again, they cried out to God for salvation. And time and time and time again, God rescued them. And so you see the cycle of Israel's sin, God's curses. They're crying out to God in repentance for salvation and God dispensing salvation and rescuing them. When Israel broke up, uh, another instance, when Israel broke up uh, into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom had ten tribes, the bottom kingdom had two tribes, okay? We see that the northern kingdom only had evil kings, only had evil kings. Eventually, God had enough of them, and he destroyed them completely by the Assyrian Empire. They were gone. Their forefathers, as Malachi says, ever since then, you've been turning aside and away from the statutes of God. The southern kingdom of Judah sins against the Lord over and over again. They have good king, bad king, good king, bad king. It's kind of like a roller coaster. And um, eventually God had enough of them, and God punishes the southern kingdom. And that's where the Babylonians come in. You know, remember King Nebuchadnezzar, that guy? All right, we, we think about that guy, and we know, oh, that's when he came down and, and pummeled Israel and took him into captivity. That was God's doing for their sin against him and breaking covenant with him. And they stayed in captivity for 70 years. In Malachi, that period is over of, of seven years of judgment from God. They have been returning back to their homeland and reestablishing covenant life and, and doing all these things. Yet here we see again, just like in former times, sins are rising up in the community again. We've already dealt with four of the problems that God has with them. The truth is that they are continuing on in their sin just like their forefathers. God was right. He was not exaggerating or making this up. We see, secondly, that a lack of giving brings discipline, discipline from God. A lack of giving brings God's discipline. Look at the second part of verse 7. God says, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, this is the people of Israel talking, God's talking for them. How shall we return? God says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you, Israel, you're going to say, how have we robbed you, God? God says, in your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So please bear in mind that when God says, return to me and I will return to you, that he has in mind the, the covenant curses. Okay? He promised he would not be with them if they turned from him. So his call is to repent, to return to him. The God of angel armies, that's the Lord of hosts. He is the one saying this. What's crazy is that Israel continues on with the same attitude that they have had the entire writing of Malachi. 
The entire writing of Malachi, they, when God accuses them of sin, they deny it. How? Like, they're blind to their own sin. Whenever God confronts them, they're oblivious. They're totally unaware that, well, let me say this. They are aware that God is displeased with them, but they don't think they've done anything wrong. Okay? They're aware. In chapter 1, when God says, I love you, Israel, what is their response? How have you loved us? They're looking around at the situation and they realize things are failing, things aren't going well, that God's curses are upon them, and they're like, Lord, you don't love us. We don't see it. Like I said, they are keenly aware of God's lack of blessing in their life, but they misconstrue it as a lack of love. And God says, I do love you. He says, how have you loved us? All right, we don't think so. God says, you know what? The problem isn't with my love for you. The problem is with your love for me. You despise my name, he says. And they say, how have we despised your name? Another denial. How have you loved us? How have we despised your name? God, you're the one with the problem, not us. God says, let me tell you how you despise my name. You pollute my name by bringing disgusting offerings to me. And they say, how have we polluted you? They recognize that God no longer regards their offerings with favor, if you remember that sermon. Why doesn't doesn't God accept our offerings anymore? God tells them, you weary me with your words. They reply, how have we wearied you? Another denial. And now we come to the fifth problem, and God says, return to me, and I'll return to you. And they pop off with their ignorant remarks again. How shall we return to you? They're continual denial that the whole, throughout the whole writing of Malachi, that they have done anything wrong. It's God who's done wrong according to them. And that's how many people look at God. Those people that aren't in covenant with God, that's how they address God. God, it's your fault that there's storms and tornadoes and, and famines. If God was all powerful, he would do something about it. And they throw the accusation back at him, and they don't realize we're the ones that wreck the world through our sin. That it's God's judge. He does love his creation. But he does not bless a sinning creation. And that can only be fixed through Jesus. So do you get what they're saying? And what's going through their minds? They don't think there's a problem with their living. Return to you, God. Return to you. We have. That's what their thought is. We have returned to you. We got the foundation to the temple rebuilt. We got the temple up. God, we remember when Malachi was telling us to stop worrying about building our own houses while the temple was in ruins and you admonished us to get the temple built? We did that. We returned to you, God. The priesthood, it's up and running. We got sacrifices coming in. I'm not sure how blind, um, if you see just how blind Israel is with God. He's just called them out on four major problems that they have in their country, in their nation, and they are still saying, how shall we return to you? Total ignorance of their own sin. Total self-righteousness. They deny God's love. They don't believe God, uh, they believe God is mistakenly rejecting their offerings. They think that God tolerates sin, if you remember that sermon. In their minds, God is the one who is failing, not them. And God is setting the record straight, the entire letter, uh, entire prophecy of Malachi. They are the ones that need to return to God. So they ask in disbelief yet again, seriously, God, how shall we return? And God tells them, will a man rob God? That's how you need... Let me tell you how you ventured from me. Will a man rob God? Which is to say, how dare anyone think of robbing God? But you are robbing me. How dare anyone think of robbing the God who gave you everything? You think it's okay to skim off the top? 
and keep it for yourself? You are robbing me, God says. You have the audacity to steal from the one who gave you everything you have. And they ask her questions of denial yet again. How have we robbed you? How shall we return to you? You're robbing me. How have we robbed you, God? Again, take notice of their ignorance. They really think they got their act together and that God is the one in the wrong. And God tells them how they're robbing him. He says, in tithes and contributions. And that is why you are under a curse, he says. The whole nation is robbing God of tithes and offerings. Their lack of tithing brings God's displeasure because they're breaking the covenant that he made with them. Thus, it brings God's judgment for their having violated these statutes. God had saved them from Egyptian cruelty, gave them a land that was not theirs, gave them rain that belonged to God. God caused their land to produce produce and flocks and their families to grow All that they had belonged to God, and they owed it to God. The land, the crops, everything, the herds, all creation belongs to God. And to remind them of how good God was in giving this amazing land and everything else, he required the tithe to come back to him. It reminded them to fear God, and it would support tabernacle work, once again, of the priests, so that they, as a nation, could remain in right standing before God, and how this system would also point the nations to Jesus Christ who was to come who would be our priest, who would be the true temple, who would be the true sacrifice and perfect sacrifice offered once and for all so that we could be in right relationship with God. And that's what they were to do. And so they're robbing God. They're stopping God's evangelism program, gospel proclamation project, by not supporting it as he said. And they should be supporting it because he gave them everything and he required it of them. The whole nation was refusing to pay the tithe. All of them robbing God. That means that the priests weren't getting paid. Maybe that's one reason that they got slack in their duties. I don't know. It's not a justification for it. They were the teachers of God's word. They should be teaching and instructing the people in God's ways so that they'd be living right before God. But the priests and the temple servants, they're being neglected, deprived of their wages. The poor are also being neglected as well. The widows and the fatherless and those who are immigrating in They had no way to be cared for because this welfare system God created was being neglected by the nation. And God says that this was robbing him. The tithe belonged to the Lord, and God could give it to whoever he wanted. And he wanted it to serve gospel proclamation and to take care of the needy, which points to the fact, again, that God is taking care of Israel. And so we see in this first point that God calls attention to their lack of giving, which violates covenant with him and brings about judgment. Okay, once again, this first point. God calls attention to their lack of giving, which violates his covenant and brings about judgment, curses. The second point we see is that God commands attention to giving generously and intentionally. God commands attention to giving intentionally because a generous giver will reap generously from God. A generous giver will reap generously from God. Look at verse 10. It says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Now, you have to understand, again, these curses and blessings are particular to Israel. Growing up as a teenager, 
I'm not joking or exaggerating. Growing up as a teenager, I literally heard the pastor of my church say that if you tithed, that God that that the tread on your tires of your car would last longer, and so would your washing machine. It would somehow produce more. Okay, somehow that was the application of this passage. Somehow God's blessings or curses on you were verified by the longevity of your tire life and washing machine. Ours broke a year ago. I, I guess I wasn't giving enough, okay? I have to replace my tires every four years. Um, who knows what's going on? But that's not true. The gar- that's garbage preaching. That's not faithful to the proper interpretation or application of this passage. Again, this is part of the Mosaic Covenant, particular to Israel. In relation to the land that produces, and in relation to the flocks that feed off of the land, in relation to the, Israel, uh, the Levites who are supported by a tenth of this production for their service to the temple. Are you with me on that? What the tithe is for? Between Israel's several tithes, it's estimated that they paid anywhere between 20 to 25% of their income or resources and tithes. It is, in essence, the tax of their nation to support the government workers, but in this case, it's the theocracy and those who are governing Israel are under the leadership of God, and it is the Levites. Okay? It's particular to these people. Most scholars say that it's nearly impossible to figure out exactly what they paid in tithes. So this is just a rough guess, 20 to 25%. In God's covenant with Israel, he tells them to bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in his house. Food. Not even talking about money. Food. They are to bring the full tithe, indicating perhaps that they were only bring a part of bringing a partial tithe, or maybe none of it. And they were to bring it into the storehouse or the temple treasury, the temple treasury. Nehemiah 13, 4 through 5, makes reference to this temple treasury. The priest, Eliashib, he was appointed over chambers like this. This chamber is where they kept grain offerings and frankincense, not Frankenstein, Okay. Offerings and frankincense, vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil. And all this was for the Levites, for the singers of the temple, for the gatekeepers. All that they kept here in these storehouses were for the Levites, so that they could have their needs met. Call it a barn, call it an extremely large pantry, but it was a storehouse or a treasury that supported the temple workers and priests. That's how they survived as they dedicated themselves completely to the Lord. Of course, we see that they're doing a terrible job here in Malachi, but that didn't excuse the nation from giving properly according to the Levitical covenant. Okay? So God puts his name and reputation on the line, and he tells the Israelites, put me to the test. In other words, see if God will not keep his word to them. He promised them abundant harvest for faithfulness to him, and he promises mildew and drought and locusts, if they break covenant with God, I think it's locusts, not locusts, okay? If they broke covenant with God. God promises if they would but return to him in their giving, that the rains would come down so that their crops would be bountiful. And if the rains came down, then the land would be watered, grass would grow, and that would mean that the herds would eat well too. They'd be fat, and that meant lots of good meat to eat and good sacrifices to God. The promises of God are that the blessings will be so bountiful, he says here in Malachi, that there will be no more need. They won't lack anything. This is a reference, again, to there being an abundance of supplies. 
God promises in this passage to rebuke the devourer so that it would not destroy the crops or the fruits of the soil of the ground. That is to say that locusts and caterpillars and pests would not eat up their crops. He would stave them off. The vines would not fail to produce because of God's rain and God rebuking pests. And it's crazy. Listen, by their being cheap and stealing from God, they actually put themselves in a destitute position. They thought that being greedy and stealing from God was to make sure that they were provided for. And God says, nope, that's not it. You're called to imitate me. You are called to display my glory. I am a giving God. You have everything from me. Be like me. Give. You're called to remember um, that I've given you so much and rescued you. And that's what these tithes and offerings are for. To recall to mind that God saved them and everything they have is from him. So God says, tithe, Israel, return to me, display my giving attitude, and remind yourselves of the salvation that you have and the blessings I've given to you. They were to give intentionally as God laid out in his covenant, and God would bless them generously. They would reap bountifully from God's generosity, and that would result if they turned back to God in tithing, God's blessings would return to them. Secondly, we see under this point that God commands attention to giving intentionally, but we see that a generous giver will bring glory to God. Look at verse 12. It says, All the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed. Notice that the nations are going to call Israel blessed. And when they see God's blessing on the lives of the Israelites, they will look at Israel, who is in covenant with the one true God, and they will see this faithful God who does what he says he would do, that they're being blessed, and that he's a saving God. And that's always been God's desire through his relationship with Israel to cause the nations to look at him and recognize him as the true God and Savior. That's why God had a special relationship with Israel, to draw all nations to him. Many times in the Old Testament, you see the enemies of Israel fearing Israel, fearing, fearing Israel, the other nations, because they heard of the mighty deeds of God. Now they're scared of this God, our God. So too, in reverse fashion, the nations would hear of the wondrous, mighty blessings of God and say, wow, look how their God treats them. He's not like our gods that we make with our hands. Our gods are deaf. They don't interact with us. Their God is living, and he rewards them as they stay faithful to him. Israel is blessed by God. Do you see how Israel's faithfulness to covenant living brings glory to God? That's why they had to do this, one of the reasons. It's their covenant faithfulness to God that keeps, where God keeps his word and blesses them and the world, take notice, uh, world takes notice of it and God's goodness. If Israel's stingy and robbing God, the, they won't receive blessings and the nations won't call them blessed and God won't be glorified by his blessings to Israel. They will fail, Israel will fail to be the evangelist that God has called them to be. Instead, the world will only see God's judgment They will only see God's judgment, but God's desire is for them to know his blessings as well in grace and mercy and giving. And so God would show various aspects of himself to Israel and the nations would watch and see and come to know God. But God wanted them to know his blessings. Israel had the opportunity to be a land of delight, a people worth admiring because of what God would do for them. Church, once you understand Israel's context, Israel's covenant, in Israel's compensation plan for the Levites, the text becomes very easy to understand. But what do we do with this? 
We are not Israel. Or, and we are not under the Mosaic Covenant. Is there application for us? Does God have a word for us? Yes, because all the scripture teaches us the nature of God and where we don't align with it. All scripture points to Christ in some measure. All scripture shows us how to do good works and how to live for God. And if need be, it rebukes us in our sin. And so let me give you several points of application. Number one, we must be givers. We must be givers to support the gospel in light of the gospel. We must be givers to support the gospel in light of the gospel. All right? We must support gospel proclamation and the gospel work. And what motivates us to do this is the good news that God has saved us. In other words, in light of the salvation that God has given us, we must go and support things that help do what was done for us, bringing the gospel to us. We have to remember that we were once poor. We were once blind. We were once naked. And God gave us riches in Christ. He gave us sight to behold the Savior so that we are no longer blind. Through faith in Christ, he has clothed us with righteousness so that God can behold us and see us. He did all this so that we could dwell with him forever. And God is the great gift of the gospel. All these other gifts of rescue and forgiveness and redemption and and righteousness and eternal life and a resurrection body, all those smaller gifts are designed to help us be with God forever. He's the ultimate goal instead of being cast away from his glorious presence into the lake of fire forever. In Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection, God has restored us to himself. He is restoring us to himself, and he will restore us to himself. We have blessings that are eternal. We are co-heirs with Christ. That is amazing news. Do you understand what it means to be a co-heir with Christ? It means you have inherited the cosmos. There is nothing that God has withheld from you not even the life of his own son. And therefore, we are to financially support the furthering of God's kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. That means that we are to give so others can hear about Christ. How do others hear about Christ? Men and women are trained up to take the gospel near, in our city, far, to the uttermost ends of the earth. And training people requires resources and finances and support. And that's ultimately why we give. We don't give to get rich. The harvest that we give to to see is an eternal harvest. It is not an earthly one, okay? The Apostle Paul explicitly states this in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Paul, you have to remember, even though Christ has come in the new, the new covenant is in effect, the old covenant is still going on in Israel. There's a transitional period. So Paul takes us to the Mosaic covenant, and he reminds these new covenant believers that the temple sacrifices that are still happening under the, under the new covenant, right? The old covenant was that. The new covenant didn't require all this. But again, not everyone in Israel had heard about the Savior. So they're still doing some of the old covenant stuff. And as people are coming to Christ in Israel, it starts to vanish away, this old covenant, the Old Testament, okay? But Paul's point is, is that there's this transition period that's coming along, all right? It's going to take some time where it's just the new covenant. And so many Israelites are living under the Mosaic law and still giving to the priests. And Paul says, listen, the way that... The Israelites are supporting the temple work. So too, in the new covenant, in the church, believers should support those who are trying to serve the Lord full time. 
So in like manner, evangelists, missionaries, elders, people who serve God full-time, they got to be financially compensated so that the gospel, gospel uh, can be proclaimed so that others can be trained and raised up. Okay? So in our local situation, you see that you benefit from God's word being taught to you by the work that the elders do and in their training of others to do ministry. At the moment, we are blessed to be able to pay one of our elders full-time so that he can serve the Lord and us full-time in order that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of God so that we can take God's word out into the world and so that the kingdom will be advanced. Okay, We are blessed spiritually, and so we take care of this man physically. And right now, we're praying and we're fasting twice a month that God would use us to provide finances so that we can take another elder and help him to come on full-time so that he can further help us so that the nations will come to know about Christ and others can be trained up. And that's why we give. We don't give to be blessed financially. We give so that the world will hear the message that we are blessed because we are in covenant with Christ. We give so that the world will know that we are blessed by being with Jesus. Do you hear that? That's why we give. Just like the nations of Israel, around Israel, would see that Israel is blessed by being in covenant with God. So too, we give in some sense to make the world jealous. We give to make the world jealous. We want them to have what we have in Jesus. We have God. We have reconciliation and restoration to God through Christ. We want them to see that we are blessed with salvation. And the way that we do this is to support kingdom servants and kingdom projects with our finances. So do you see the correlation between the old covenant and now the new covenant? Okay, and what's going on? So let me ask you, how much do you care about the nations? And how much do you care about our country? And how much do you care about our city and our state? How much do you care that they receive the blessing of salvation in Christ? Your giving is a reflection of that. Do you love God and want others to know God? Your giving tells the answer to these questions. And just so you know, the elders have no idea what people give at this church. We don't want to know. I pray that your love for God and love for sinners, sinners who are going to hell, and love for God and what he's done for you is enough to move you to contribute to supporting your local church, elders, and the projects that we present to you so others can know of Christ. We must be givers to support the gospel in light of the gospel coming to us. We must also be givers that are generous. In the new, uh, in the new covenant, we are called to be generous givers. How much? How much? Let me ask. What do you have that didn't first come? What do you have that first didn't come from God? What is it that you have that you're like, God didn't give this to me? You, 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 there's nothing. Everything you have came from God. What part of your possessions did you bring into this world when you were born? Has it not all come from God, like the promised land and the fruit of the soil in Israel under the old covenant, right? Right? Does it not all belong to him? Why are we even contemplating how much we should give to God when we all know that it belongs to him? We are but stewards or managers of God's resources. That's all we are. It all belongs to God. While we're not under the Old Testament economy anymore, let me show you how the new covenant believers, us, were supposed to give and how believers uh, gave in light of Christ's sacrifice. In regards to the poor, the Apostle Paul told the, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2, he says that they were to set aside some money for the poor saints every week. 
every week. They're to set aside money for poor, poor believers. They were to do this according to their prosperity that week, based on their income and what they made. And this was a perpetual thing every week. They were to say, how has God blessed me? And with all that rightfully belongs to him, how has God blessed me? And then we're to determine appropriately or proportionately what we are to give. Well, that doesn't seem to tell me how much, Pastor. Well, let me just say that you know when you're being generous and you know when you're being stingy. You can feel it in your heart, am I right? There are times when you're like, oh, i got to help that person, but I'd really keep that. You know that inner struggle. We're all aware of it because our conscience is there to help us know right from wrong. Okay? In 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, the apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, he's talking to them in his letter, he says, listen, I want you to know about the Macedonian church. You need to listen to how generous they are. Okay? Church, this is going to crush some of us here. Just be prepared for God to speak to your heart. There was a special grace, the Apostle Paul says, in an enabling that, from God that allowed these believers to give in this way that Paul's about to describe. In a severe test of pain and affliction and suffering, that means things are not going well for them. In the midst of that, they had an abundance of joy in their giving. Even in their hardship, they were in the midst of extreme hardship and suffering, nevertheless in joy and in their extreme poverty, they overflowed with extreme generosity. They gave according to their means, and then Paul says, even beyond their means. Paul says, meaning, meaning this, they gave proportionately as God had blessed them, even in their poverty when it hurt them to give, and then they went over and above their proportionate giving. They even begged earnestly for the ability to partake in helping other saints who were poor. They're poor, and they're saying, please allow us to help those who are poor. This was unexpected, Paul says. And he says that the reason they gave like this, listen to this, the reason they gave like this is because they first gave themselves totally to God. I belong to God. I'm all about God, nothing else. He says, then they gave themselves to other believers in need. I'm not sure if you see what's going on. These poor believers wanted to give beyond their means and ability. And they're now at the point of giving up the necessities of life. And people are telling them, no, please stop giving. Stop giving. You need this money. You are in need. Keep it for yourselves. Please don't contribute any more to the needs of others. You've done enough. And these broke, poor, suffering believers said, please allow us to give. They begged Earnestly, please do not stop us from giving. We have to be able to give. We want to give. Do not limit us. Don't deprive us of blessing others who are in need. They are dying to give. Relentless in their giving. Joyous in their giving. They aren't under compulsion. No one is holding a gun to their head saying you have to give. They aren't being forced. In fact, others are compelling them to stop. And they're like, please don't stop us. Let us give. And they did so joyfully over and above what was expected. And Paul says, we didn't expect that at all. I don't know about you, but maybe we should stop asking how much we should give and ask ourselves, Am I fully consecrated to God? Am I fully devoted to him? Or am I just playing around with God who gave himself to me? He gave himself to me. 
Have I given myself to him? Nothing else will do except total consecration to God. Am I fully devoted to the church of God? In my estimation, the tithe of the old covenant starts to look measly when compared to the giving of the saints of the Bible. And I'm not telling you to to give over 10% or under. I'm not telling you that. I'm just saying when you look at the New Testament Christians, they were radical. In the book of Acts, the very first church, they were of one heart and one soul. And they all agreed that anything they owned did not belong to them. What an attitude. Could you take that upon yourself that everything you own does not belong to you? Not your car, not your house, not your dog, not your clothes, not your refrigerator, your washer, uh, your tires that are balding. None of it belongs to you. It all belongs to God. There was no need, Scripture says, among them because they shared everything they had. Wealthy people were even selling their properties and bringing the proceeds to the apostles so that the money could be distributed according to the needs of the church. Brothers and sisters, if you thought Abraham set an example in 10% or that Israel's 20 to 25% was massive, consider that the early church blew this out of the water. They gave out of suffering and pain completely, joyfully, intentionally, proportionally, and then some to care for the needy and to further the gospel by supporting full-time servants of God. So are you fully consecrated to God first? And then to the church. Do you realize that every spiritual blessing you have, you have because God gave to you? Do you remind yourself that Jesus gave his life for you? And do you give to support the gospel and to help the needy and to remind yourself that all you have is from God? Do you give joyfully, deliberately, intentionally, sacrificially, eagerly, earnestly? We should be begging God to give us more resources so that we can give more away for the kingdom. When was the last time you prayed like that? Or did you just pray for your needs? My heart is crushed under the weight of God's word right now. I, I don't know if you can just feel this in the word of God. We need to give to grow in our worship and love for God and love for others. And that's how we invest in eternity. That's how we lay up treasures, plural, in heaven. God is our primary treasure But there's a treasure of knowing that our giving brings souls and lives to God. I'd rather have that in eternity, knowing that people are rescued forever from hell and are with God. What a treasure it will be to see all the people that came to Christ because of our giving. What a treasure. Do you know, I I just recently went through a book on heaven, four different views on heaven, and someone said something that was interesting. In, in, In eternity, in the new creation, heaven on earth, we will all be knowing, we will be fully human, all right, with no sin. And each of us, we're going to be interacting with God. And because God is infinite, we're all going to be learning about God in different ways. And you're going to be so blown away by what you learn of God that you're going to want to share it with me. And I'm going to want to share it with you. And we're just going to be constantly talking about God because we're all learning about God and doing and then serving in this world however God sees it. But that is just God giving more of himself to us and giving and giving for our delight and our joy. And our giving is a deep reflection of just how much we grasp and cherish the gospel that God is our true treasure and what he has done for us in Christ to give us himself. God loved us this way, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish under the wrath of God, but have everlasting life, and he is that life. So what did God give to you? Himself. And not only himself, but he's given you everything that belongs to Christ. You're a co-heir. He's given you the cosmos, everything. You own, you own creation because you are joint heirs with Christ. Not only has he given himself to you, but he's given everything. The life of God. 
was given for you? What excuse can we possibly muster up to explain why giving is not a priority in our spiritual life? We are called to reflect God's glory and image. Is our God a giver? You are called to reflect that. You are called to support the gospel so that nations can know of Christ just as someone gave the gospel to you so that you could believe in Christ. You are called to help the needy because God has come and helped you in your deepest need of salvation and forgiveness. Giving is a worship issue. Giving is a gospel issue. Giving is an eternal issue of life and death. If you know, listen, if you know that you are privileged to give but have not been giving, would you confess that sin to God and repent today? Would you ask God to give you joy and generosity and and a sacrificial heart in giving so that you can join us in spreading the gospel and caring for the needy? If you didn't know about giving for these reasons, then pray and ask God what you might be able to start doing. Please keep Pastor Steve in mind when you give. You're giving because you love this guy and because you're blessed by how he helps equip you for the kingdom. Would you continue to pray and give so that by God's will, Pastor Brian can come on staff so that the kingdom can grow further by his full-time ministry to our church and community? I know, listen, I know for a fact that Pastor Steve took a pay cut to serve full-time at Sovereign Way Christian Church. I know that if Brian is able to come on full-time, that he's going to take a huge pay cut as well. I say that because I want you to know that my brothers, my fellow elders, do not serve here out of greed. They would have stayed where they were if money was a priority in their, in their life. One, has, one of them has sacrificed greatly, and one may be doing the same to come serve at the church and serve the Lord. That only happens when you are fully consecrated to God, when, when God matters more than your own, your own physical benefit. It doesn't happen when people are being stingy and concerned about money. They are setting an example for us to follow. So let's follow their example, the example of the early church. Let's follow the instructions of the Apostle Paul for new covenant believers. And let us overtake the kingdom of darkness with the kingdom of Jesus. Let's not be like the Israelites in Malachi. If you are not a Christian, giving is not for you. We are not asking you to give in any way whatsoever. What you need to know is that we exist, we believers exist to worship God and to make him known to you. And that's why we give. To further, we give to further the cause of letting you know that God gave Jesus up on the cross for your sins so that you would not have to die. And that Jesus rose again to conquer death in order to impart spiritual life to you if you would but turn from your sin, return to him so that he can bless you with salvation so that you can be with God forever. That's why we give. Giving is not for you. We want you to know that. We want you to know that by trusting in the perfect Jesus who was crucified, buried, and risen again, you can be restored to God. And that's what God's son has done for you. He gave his life. He gave, he gave, he gave. After rising from the dead, he ascended to heaven and he's promised to come again. He's promised to come again to save his people and to judge rebels. And how do we know God will keep his word? Because he kept his word in Malachi. He punished them when they were evil and he blessed them when they were right. God keeps his word. He's trustworthy. It's not a gut feeling. It's a historical fact. Scripture says then, if you would confess that Jesus is Lord, that he's boss of you, that he's king of you, of your life, and if you would believe that God raised him from the dead, then you will, joy, uh, you will joyfully dwell with God forever. You will be saved. 
So as far as today's sermon is concerned, you need to know that the Mosaic Covenant points to all of this. And you need to know that God gave up Jesus for you. You need to know that we give to support unbelievers' awareness of the gospel of Christ. And so if you're an unbeliever, we urge you and we beg you earnestly to turn from your sin, to turn from a self-ruled life. Believe that Jesus died and rose again so you can receive the greatest gift of salvation ever, which is God himself. That's our giving God. He wants to bless you, but that only happens when you come to Christ. So come to him today. Repent of your sin and trust Jesus to save you. Church, let us prepare to take communion. We're going to sing one final song of our giving ourselves completely to God, and we will take communion to remind ourselves that God gave himself completely to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we bless your name. We thank